Hello, it is the 52 List Podcast with me, Maria Seal, and today my guest is the one and only, my soul sister, one of my best friends of all time, Callie Little. Callie Little is a full-time artist and writer. She's written for places like Bust Magazine, Vice, Teen Vogue, Auto Struggle, and more, and has been featured on NPR's Life Kit. Her visual art has been shown in galleries throughout the Pacific Northwest, and these days you can find her tattooing at the private studio Good Habits in Ballard neighborhood here in Seattle. I have one of her tattoos on my leg, which was inspired by the project that we are working on, and we will talk about more. The Pocket Coven, which she co-hosts with licensed therapist Amber Lenore, has 90,000 downloads and has been ranked the third most popular mental health podcast in Iceland. (laughs) her forthcoming debut book co-authored with yours truly every little thing you do is magic will be on shelves in the spring of 2024 callie welcome thank you for having me thank you for being here namaste i've been so excited for you to start your podcast thank you it's a joy to be here it's been you know just months of being anxious about it and finally we're here and I just want to have some real, honest conversations with people I adore, such as yourself. And quickly, I want to mention a trigger warning at the start of this episode. Callie is one of my dearest friends and is very open about growing up in a family where she experienced abuse. So I just want to let you know ahead of time that if you too grew up in a very dysfunctional family with parents who were neglectful, Uh, and who use drugs, please know ahead of time that we will be talking about this on the show. And if you do listen, I hope that you find Callie's story inspirational, comforting, and uplifting, because she is truly someone who has overcome. And we share our stories in vulnerability in hopes that it gives you the courage to overcome and makes you feel a little less alone. And now, back to the show. Thanks for joining me, Callie. It was, I mean, it was an easy yes, because obviously I would say yes to doing any project with you, but also because I have uh, an entire shelf of your books, as one must. If you are friends with an author, you had better have that writer's books on your shelf. Otherwise, (laughs) what are you even doing? What kind of friend would I be if I didn't force everything I make upon you? (laughs) What kind of friend would I be if I didn't know where it was? It's got a place of prominence. It's right above my desk in the makerspace where I'm recording this right now. And if you are watching the YouTube version of this, you will see uh, the space that Callie is in has 5,000 different projects happening at once. Callie, I mean, not only is she a writer and a podcaster, but she also just is good at everything she picks up. So she <laughs> does clay one time, becomes a ceramic artist, uh, does tattooing one time, becomes a tattoo artist. She can do it all. And it's one of her, you know, we we are both autistic. It's one of her magical autistic skills is being good at mm, everything. <laughs> yeah, you know, Jack of many trades, master of none. Um and the rest of that saying is uh, like something along the lines of, but still better than a master of one. And I think that that's so true. Also, having ADHD, I've got to keep up novelty in my life. I've got to switch up my projects. So, yeah, if you're seeing this, it is not the cutest room in my house, but this is the maker space. So, we have behind me, there's like a laser cutter and engraving machine. We've got a Resograph back here, which is a printer for some really cool art. We've got a photo light box over here. We've got a cricket over here. Stuff everywhere. A two 3D printers right next to me. <laughs> I don't use those. I don't know how to use them. Um, but I live in a, a big creative home. And yeah, I think I think it's just fun to try stuff and not be, you know, fettered down with perfectionism. That's not my style. Yeah, that's my style. Just kidding. <laughs> Which is why we're a good team. Exactly. I, like, go hard and say this is what we're doing, and you say we're going to make it really good. And <laughs> we're like two horses going in the opposite direction, and yet somehow we get to the finish line, 
and it's been a safe, efficient, effective journey. Yeah. And great. It's like we're both going sideways but forward at the same time, <laughs> tethered to each other. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I mean, I think that it's that case in like every relationship, but when you are doing like a work project together, it's so much more solidified what you have to talk about, how you have to work together. And so you and I have really gotten to know that part of our friendship over the past three years. Yeah, two, three years. So what led us to this moment here is that a few years ago, Callie and I had the dream of creating something together, ideally a book something we could publish, something with our names on it in a physical realm. We thought up the book that we are now calling Every Little Thing You Do is Magic, which is a workbook for learning the tarot. And while learning it, uh, you don't have to be new to use this, new to tarot to use this workbook. It's about deepening your spiritual practice, your mental health practice, your self-care practices while utilizing tarot. And in addition to that, we are also designing and creating a tarot deck. So we had this idea two to three years ago. We worked really hard at different visions. We scrapped a lot of things. We pitched to a bunch of different publishers. We put it on the back burner. We brought it back out again. And thankfully, we are now working on it uh, through Clarkson Potter. It will be published in 2024, and we just completed the first draft of our manuscript last week. Congratulations! Yeah. It's been a journey. It's been such a long journey. We started it in the first couple months of the pandemic. You and I were each trying to figure out how to make money. You were figuring out if you were going to continue having a retail business. I was... I don't know. What was I doing? I was selling you were doing peer counseling. Jewelry. Yep. You were running your jewelry shop. Yeah. Which was an Etsy based business. Um, and we both needed a way to make money. So individually, it wasn't like we talked about it. We just as individuals started reading tarot for money, which we had each had as a part of our life for years by that point. And I remember I saw you doing tarot readings on Instagram and I had this moment of feeling like, oh, I wish Maria would ask me to do tarot with her. And then I was like, what What am I saying? Like, I wish my friend would do a thing that I didn't even think to do until right now. I could just ask my friend if she wants to do that with me. So it was like, for a moment, I was projecting this sense of blame. And then I realized that that was bullshit. And I was like, hey, would you want to do that with me? And you were like, yeah, what do you want to do? Yeah. But I mean, it's always been that way with you. I think that when we met, you know, we met as you, the Mauricio TM was invited to this event that a little old journalist, me was also invited to, and we were put in a cabin together. And I said, Oh, Mauricio, like the shop. And you went, Oh yeah. And I said, Oh, don't worry. I've never read your books. And you were like, thank God. Okay, cool. And we hung out and I was like, yeah, it must be hard to like have people, you know, quote unquote, know you. And I got to see some of that happen. Some people, you know, cry because they saw you. And I was like, oh, that's weird. Okay. And, um, and we just kind of were glued to each other all weekend. Some woman was really mean about me and I overheard her being mean. She was like talking shit about me in the bathroom. And I was laughing about it and told you. You were like, where is she? And I confronted her, you know. I just have big sister energy, and if I love someone, immediately I will protect you. Yeah, and I I think that we have both really done that for each other a lot. We've seen each other through some really rough things. So doing this really intense project, you know, mainstream publishing a book is hard on its own, and then doing it with another person Obviously, it comes with a lot of niceties. It comes with a lot of uh, relief. But also, you and I had never really split a creative project 50-50 to this scale. You've done so many things. And I've done so many things, but this is a unique experience. And 
And I think that's certainly... also what makes this project feel so fresh for both of us. For you, mm-hmm. it is your first officially published book, which yeah. is huge. For me, it is my first time co-authoring a book. Though I have published many books, it's like when you've done something many times, it loses the joy, the newness, the excitement. And I really needed your joy to witness your joy and your enthusiasm and your excitement so I could get back into that, I don't know, the first excitement space again. Yeah, I remember you talking about that at the beginning where, you know, we kind of thought that the process for this was going to be similar to the trajectory that your individual career as an author has had. And it really hasn't been at all the same. It's been in no ways the same. (laughs) (laughs) And um, so the blueprint that you had going in, we haven't, we like attempted to follow and just continually, I I don't want to say we're let down. It's more like it just didn't work, you know, because we haven't, really been let down we've got this dream publisher the most perfect editor for this project that we could hope for like when when we finally met Sarah in that meeting we were both like I'm in love I'm in love she's perfect (laughs) and I I feel so fortunate and hashtag blessed for that (laughs) um it's been a journey and like you and I've gotten to know all these new parts of each other We've gotten to really uh, hone our (laughs) communication skills and our friendship. We've really gone through a ton separately and together. And I just, I'm so grateful for our experiences. Likewise. And I'm so grateful that we are exactly our unique, weird, odd, strange selves. It's such a beautiful thing to get to be queer people together writing something that we hope will truly be inclusive to all people. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's a joy to be two autistic people. No two autistic people are the same. Uh, That's, you know, there's this, this idea that an autistic person is just like a four-year-old boy who loves dinosaurs and math and doesn't talk. Mm -hmm. There are so many more facets to autism than that uh, archetype. And so it's also uh, fascinating for us to get to work together and to see our specific challenges and our specific skills that we have because of who we are. Uh, And one thing that I love that you don't love is lists. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I love a to-do list. Sure. um, But a conceptual list. Your brain says, no, thank you. Yeah. And not always, you know, there are some things where it's like, what I love gratitude lists, really simple things. But the list that we're doing today, when you asked me about it, I was like, oh, that's one I actually avoided because (laughs) I don't even, the way that I think about it doesn't make sense. I'll let you introduce it and then I'll explain what I mean by that. Yeah. So today we are doing list number two from the 52 list project. This is a journal series that I created and published. And Callie has done many of the lists in it, but didn't want to do list number two, which is list your favorite <laughs> characters from books, movies, TV, etc. For me, this definitely, when I, when I thought of this list prompt, it did feel like a challenge because I've never compiled that information, though I know that it sits somewhere in my body. The reason why, well, I don't know. I don't really know why I first chose to create that list, but after creating my own list, it made me massively see my own gender dysphoria. It made me see, um, yeah, how I just didn't have much representation uh, for the person that I feel I am inside. And so I attached myself to a bunch of these different characters in different ways. So when I told Callie I wanted to fill out this list with her, and she said, oh, God, please, no. I said, well, what about, okay, (laughs) so there aren't many characters that you admire. That's fair and fine and good, and I think is a reflection of your ability to observe others, to have sound judgment 
and to see pieces of who they are that maybe you think is interesting, intriguing, but also have criticism of other parts. And of course, you're not just going to glom onto one character and be like, it's me, or I'm obsessed with that person. I love that your brain does not uh, overly attach to different characters. And so I also uh, prompted Callie, what if you thought about, you know, what, who are some different characters that you could cr- criticize? Who are some different characters that you think reflect different archetypes in the tarot? Uh, just explore it in your own unique way. So I'm curious to see what path you went down. <laughs> yeah, well, I sat down with it and I think when you asked about this list and I was like, LOL, um, <laughs> I was like, you know, we can try it because I feel like it's interesting that this is one that is so juicy for you. And one that to me, I really have to think about it. Um, and the reason I have to think about it is because when I'm participating in media, I don't really notice the characters as these individual parts so much as I notice them as plot devices. Mm, mm-hmm. I really view media through um, a creative lens. And I feel like that sounds so pretentious, but listen, this is the way that I see the world. I like. It's like I a very cerebral watching. approach to observing yeah. media with like some guards almost. Some. I guess. Well, I was, so I was thinking about ways this shows up in my life elsewhere. Mm -hmm. And for example, I am really rarely in my own dreams. It's not Hmm. that I'm like observing myself or that I'm participating. It's like, I'm watching a movie and I'm nowhere near reality. Also like to get the slightest bit R rated. Um, (laughs) When I have, you know, steamy fantasies, I am never part of those. Again, it is like watching TV. Hmm. So I think that it's not about like, I don't know. I don't really see characters as individuals. They are just this like plot point to me. Hmm. So I was thinking about that. And then I thought, well, like, okay, if how I view this prompt is what are your favorite movies? Really? What are your favorite books? Um, Then what are some pieces that exemplify that so I will I'd be happy to share with you what I yes, have I, I would I love know. what what format do you want for sharing this just read it out loud okay I'm gonna explain some too because Please do. we're a little less known um okay <laughs> I also feel like this is such an intense view into the weirdest parts of my personality it's very revealing um, but that's exactly so, what I want that's what I'm here for. Great. I don't want surface level. Right away. Yeah. I want to dig into the depths of Cali Little. So. Yeah. Okay. Let's start off with the weirdest part. Okay. Um, so Abby from the book Mother Thing by Ainsley Hogarth. This is a book that just came out really recently. And it is so. Are we, are we cursing on your podcast? You can curse here. Or am I yes. self-censored? Okay. It is so fucking weird. <laughs> <laughs> From page one, you learn, you know, that this protagonist, Abby, really doesn't have a strong sense of self. She is so wrapped up in the idea of loving her husband, her husband loving her and being this good wife. But also she is slowly unraveling into madness throughout mm-hmm. the book. And it ends with like cannibalism. Cool. It is an incredibly insane romp, and I, I highly recommend it. Um, I'm going to clarify, because we're in the age of Army Hammer, that I don't have cannibalistic tendencies whatsoever. I love that um, about you. The part that I, the part <laughs> that I identify with is her insatiable hunger for being loved. Mm. And it reminds me so much of when I was younger, and everything I did was in that like desire to be loved. Yeah. So I've got her, and I, God, I recommend that book. Um, I've got Mimi from The Paris Apartment by Lucy Foley. Have you read that one? No. I think you would like it. It's kind of a murder mystery, and Mimi is a lovesick teenager. And mm-hmm. I don't know. I was thinking about the two of them in really similar ways because of the sad, brokenhearted girl. Yeah. Plus murder. Um, plus murder. But then, <laughs> you know, casual side of killing. Um, 
that Francine from Strangers in Paradise by Terry Moore. That's a graphic novel from like the late 90s and early 2000s. And the reason that I chose to write her down, I loved those graphic novels in my teenage years. And it was the first time I ever saw a plus-size woman as the love interest. Like mm. the, oh my God, look how hot and beautiful and perfect she is. And she wasn't perfect. She was this like very average woman. Um, and she wasn't fat and I am fat, but it was still the first time I saw anybody even with like the slightest bit of belly presented as being hot. And back then that was quite a unique thing. Yeah. We love representation. We do. Um, I've also got every character Miranda July has ever written. (laughs) I wrote down they're weird and complex. And sometimes they make me feel like the author watches me when I'm alone. They're just, they're, they do the strangest things. And while I have never done this, one of my favorite examples is in her book, The First Bad Man, the protagonist is uh, at her love interest's house and she goes to the bathroom. She realizes that she has to uh, do a number two. And as she's doing it, she thinks this is the last poop I will ever have as a single woman. <laughs> How precious it is. And she's like really getting romantic about this. And I, um, that is a step farther than I think I can go. But I love the absurdity of this like wild sense of romanticism yeah. in her characters and just how wackadoo they are. I've got some random other ones, but those are really the highlights. Yeah, it's powerful for me to hear those things um, because I'm an outside observer, but because I know you, I know a lot about your life story. Um, so I think it's something that I hear and see from those characters that you brought up, like it totally makes sense to me that you would be drawn to these characters because you are, you're a Virgo, you are underneath your ability to be ferocious when you need to be the murderess. You are so sensitive, you are so tender, you are mm-hmm. so loving. And it seems like all of these different characters embody those things. Like they have wacky, outward, outrageous qualities, but inwardly they are so soft. And yeah. it's because of their softness that probably the outside is so wacky and wild. Mm-hmm. And I think that's that's a quality I also relate to. Um, do you feel mm-hmm. comfortable uh, sharing a little bit about your earlier life? Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've shared so much about it professionally anyway. Um, you know, the first really big... Well, the first thing I ever published was with Bust Magazine, and it was called Mourning My Abuser, My Mother. And I grew up in really extreme poverty. I ended up being homeless as a teenager. But before that, um, was brought up in a really complex environment with, you know, two mentally ill parents who were both boarders, who both dealt with addiction and various ways my father had been an alcoholic and he was as far as I know he's on the wagon somewhere but we haven't spoken in 10 years and my mother had been addicted to meth and then cocaine and pills and then meth again and it's uh not that uh they didn't you know have love for me it's that they really didn't have support and so a lot of my life has been learning that learning that those really hard to accept parts of my parents and my early life weren't really designed to hurt me. They did, but they were these systemic failures from beyond the scope of my parents. Mm -hmm. While my parents were complicit in my abuse and the things that I've suffered in my life, they're also part of, a really greater failure. Yep. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I I definitely grew up really craving softness and safety and love. And it makes, I don't know, your framing of it 
makes a lot of sense that like that's what I'm kind of looking for in these characters and interestingly the whole like big personality thing when I was younger that drove me bananas when people were like you're such a big personality you're so outgoing you make friends with everybody because it felt like it ignored those really tender pieces of me yeah to just reduce me to the easiest biggest brightest parts Mm -hmm. it's almost like they pointed out your coping mechanisms rather than acknowledging like the reason why you are presenting this way to the world yeah but I mean it's uncomfortable either way it's uncomfortable to like be noticed I think especially when you are somebody who lives with uh complex PTSD you know a lot of the experience of having that is dissociation and depersonalization which is also one of the reasons that I don't perceive myself in other characters and mm-hmm. dreams it's all related to dissociation so this this like very topical and could be very frivolous list can actually go really deep yeah if you're really thinking about it like I don't know I think if a trigger comes up you gotta get curious about it yeah I'm glad that uh, I could lovingly force you to fill this list out <laughs> because you just asked me and I was like, okay, fine, okay. fine, I'll do it. Yeah. But I think it's so sweet. Like I'm excited to see a peek at the different characters that you brought up too. But you know, those first three really speak to the person that you are. And I think it's so sweet. Like I think, you know, we are both people and sweet, I think gets a bad rap. I think it, when someone, yeah, when you're like called sweet, it can sound so like, well, aren't you sweet? Like so belittling, but I think uh, sweetness can only exist in a space that's really vulnerable and really honest, really sincere. Sincerity is such a risk. And I think uh, there is this advantage that we have in being autistic people and that we are so sincere. And it makes other people uncomfortable sometimes, but it's such a beautiful thing to gift that sincerity back to ourselves. I think we are, you know, I know for myself, like I observe the world with a really sincere sweetness. I just look at things very honestly and speak to things very honestly. Um, But I also can feel so removed from myself, from my body, from my own identity. So I think that this list, this prompting is you giving some sweetness to yourself, uh, getting to see yourself reflected back to you almost in a way that like you can't control the narrative. Mm-hmm. You're outside of it, observing someone else, and you're having to uh, force yourself to connect to someone else and uh, hear their narrative and then view your personal narrative through their lens in a weird I think it's probably, that's also probably what was what makes you feel a little bit uncomfortable is you're like, oh, I'm dipping into facets of myself by connecting with this character. Um, and that's something yeah. that it, it freaked me out when I filled out the list, realizing like, oh, I like all of my, almost all of my favorite characters are male. Almost all of my favorite characters are like uh, young boys going through some sort of uh, adventure or journey of self-understanding and they've been abandoned in some way or they're alone. Of course, Harry Potter, I love. Um, But the one uh, female character that I put down is Matilda and Mrs. Honey from Matilda. Because it felt like, yeah, it's like every, every woman that I know and love, that's like a common thread that we have is loving Matilda. Because it is that, that child who's having to exist on her own and create magic from whatever she has on hand. Um, She is so courageous. She's so determined. Uh, As I look through As I think of that book now, I'm like, she really exemplifies to me, like, an archetype of an autistic girl. (laughs) Um, 
And it's beautiful yeah. to also think about how powerful she is. But that's the only that's the only person born into a female sex, female body, whatever, uh, that as a, I don't know, as I reflect back on different characters and I'm like, okay, I can identify with that one. Wow. There are so many juicy things in what you just said. Um, and yeah, Matilda is such a, such an icon for so many of us, such an icon for me because I, even as a child, I got to see my reality reflected. It was so similar mm-hmm. to the depiction in the Danny DeVito film. Yeah. Uh, and <laughs> I think her parents were more functional than mine, but it was so inspiring to see this smart little girl who was not, she wasn't the protagonist because she was like the cutest child. Yeah. She was a cute enough kid, but it wasn't that she was pretty. And that was also such a unique story for a protagonist if a woman is in the center stage of anything at any age her beauty is always part of it and to have this little girl just be a little girl and dress like a little girl yeah and have it be about her sense of bravery and curiosity and courageousness and her big heart and not have her succumb to the very intense sadness that was surrounding her really beautiful also it's fascinating to me that you identify so strongly with male protagonists because even now my whole life and even now I have always avoided male narratives I <laughs> I noticed that there are just so many of them I'm like ah, been there done, that, <laughs> done, there, done it heard it don't need it yeah um, but there are so many and there are some that I love like the goldfinch by Donna Tartt which reminds me a lot of what you're saying. You know, the protagonist is this boy who loses his mom and everything and has to hide this kind of terrible secret that's also really beautiful. Um, And there are those pieces that really transcend gender and sex. So I don't know. It's interesting that you noticed a gender dysphoria within your list. Yeah. For me, I think it was uh, because growing up, I was the oldest of three girls, um, and my name was Ashley. And growing up in England, Ashley was a boy's name, so I got mistaken for being a boy all the time. I was pretty gender fluid. I grew up in a village of 400 people and was just kind of, you know, a little genderless hobbit playing in the fields. Um, so I people thought I was a boy often, and... It, it was kind of uncomfortable, but also I didn't really care. And then moving to the U.S. in 1994, I met American Ashleys, which are the stereotype of, like, bubbly Ashley. Um, and I was not that. I had a deeper voice. I was really cerebral for an eight-year-old. I'd been through a lot of trauma. I was just not. I was a very stoic little child. And... The American label of girly Ashley didn't make sense. Uh, The American label of girl, period, did not make sense to me. And so I always had this battle going on inside of myself. Uh, Sure, I like some things that are labeled girly, but I feel really masculine. I, I just don't identify with the label of girl. Um, today I still feel comfortable with the term woman because I've grown up in this body and had to do a lot of work in accepting myself as a quote unquote woman. But I also love the word non-binary because it also, uh, explains and defines so much of who I've been my whole life that didn't have a name. Um, so when I look at all these different little boy characters, I'm like, yeah, that's who I felt I was. Um, I didn't care about being called yeah. pretty. I didn't care about uh, all of the, yeah, every narrative about a little girl in in most books or stories is about like falling in love and having a boy rescue you. And I wasn't interested in any of that. I 
I, my dad would tell me growing up, I just want you to find a nice rich man who will take care of you. And I was like, I want to take care of myself. <laughs> I can do it myself. I will figure it out myself. I got me. No, thank yeah. you. In the words of Cher, mom, I am a rich man. Exactly. Cher gets it. Uh, I wish that I had heard her that quote from her when I was younger. Cause I would have been like, exactly. I just want to become Cher. That's all. I mean, I, I wish I would have known you when I was a child because what you're saying is so opposite to how I grew up. I saw the depiction of femininity as instructional mm-hmm. and not, not in a way that was like, oh, so I just do this. It was like, all of these things don't make sense. And so something is wrong with me. Oh, yeah. I remember, <laughs> I remember thinking that it was impossible that I was actually a girl simply because I farted. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> and it's because of this weird southern saying that my grandfather had which is like girls don't fart they fluff and I was like well I fart so I don't know what the fuck is going on like I must not be a girl being a hyper literal you know undiagnosed yeah. autistic kid yeah I'm like oh yeah I I think that if I had been able to see the celebration of being a girl and not being all those things, but also not being just a tomboy. That yeah. was the only other option in the nineties was you're either this girly girl or you were a backwards baseball cat girl. Yep. And I was neither of those. Yeah. And I still am neither of those. Um, <laughs> I'm a little bit of both of those. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The non-binary woman thing. Mm-hmm. You and I have had such parallel journeys in our, you know, neurodiverse explorations and also our gender explorations where we're both like, oh, autistic, oh, ADHD, oh, non-binary, but also woman. Yeah. Because the box of woman is just so small and limiting and impossible. Yeah. It's very hard to live up to uh, America's definition of what a woman is supposed to be we both also grew up within christian culture and there's a there's a big old definition of who you're supposed to be as a woman Uh, i went to christian college i did not go to christian high school but i did go to christian college um and i remember uh that was that was the point where i started to try and contort myself into the box of who I thought society needed me to be. I didn't have the capacity to mask very well when I was younger, even though I was not diagnosed autistic yet. Uh, But I realized that if I want to make friends, (laughs) I need to perform a little bit. Um, So college was absolutely the journey of that, of dressing way more feminine, um, of trying to be more friendly, of growing my hair long, of doing all the things that I thought were like the rules of the Bible, of being a good woman. I was telling my... (laughs) Isn't that the whole journey that led to you really gaining internet fame? It is. It is. Yes. My... Especially when it comes to fashion, the way that I view or I viewed women's fashion was kind of as like art objects, um, pretty art objects. I'm still, I'm drawn to pretty. Yes. Um, but I was able to kind of detach myself from it and just collect, collect pretty things, uh, to create this vision board of femininity. And that's how I built a million followers on Pinterest on accident was by collecting, organizing, uh, this vision of who I wanted to be. Uh, That's what got me my first influencer gigs 10 years ago. Um, That's what led me down the path of opening a retail storefront. It was like I was, um, I think of a lot of the women's hyper-feminine fashion that I wore was like my armor, my protector from you seeing the weird little androgynous chaos monster that lived inside of me. 
that wasn't acceptable to the public until 2020. <laughs> I just, I needed uh, that shield. Um, and I studied it and I learned it and I practiced it and I wore it and then I shed it because I no longer yeah. needed it by understanding myself more and my queer identity and understanding that I am very neurodivergent. What a mind fuck though, to have this, like, I'm guessing semi-conscious, semi-subconscious knowledge that you have to put on, you know, an act in a way. It's always an extension of ourselves, but to have to play out this one aspect of yourself and then have so much validation of that. Yeah. It's like, yes, good job. You're doing it so well. Keep doing that. Like, how much pressure and how limiting I think that you know when we're presenting ourselves really from a place of developed sense of self it can be lovely to have that but one of the biggest hurdles I think of social media is that we get so much feedback all the time that it does it doesn't leave us room to feel how we feel about ourselves yeah absolutely and I think you know, it doesn't just apply to uh, a white girl putting on girlier clothes, getting more validation, but it applies to any person who's in a marginalized group who has the ability to code switch. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's built into the American way to try and homogenize yourself so that you can function in the world of patriarchal white society. Uh, And I think many of us go through conscious or unconscious conditioning in trying to fit into what society at large will say is right and good. Um, And I know that when I started to finally wake up to that and see that, it was devastating and uncomfortable to peel off uh, to reveal the person underneath um, because I also knew uh, I would lose privileges. Uh, I would lose attention. I would lose um, validation. Relationships. relationships. (laughs) Um, But it also was what was right Mm -hmm. and ultimately most healthy for me. Um, It's a strange journey waking up to yourself, waking up to uh, seeing where you are just living out an archetype or a character uh, versus living a very authentic life. And I think that's bringing it back to this list. I think that's also, it seems to me (laughs) for the years that I have known you um, and what you've told me about your younger life, that you I know when you were younger, you say that you really felt like you had to perform girliness, but you, you just seem like you've always had a very loud, authentic voice inside still questioning and saying, I feel uncomfortable. I just am not going to push myself that way when it doesn't feel right. Yeah. And that feels like that, being grounded in that space, being aware of that inner voice saying, I must be true to myself, is what has finally gotten to the point that you're at now. Mm-hmm. You have allowed yourself to explore so many facets of self, explore different creative uh, outlets, to finally come to a place where you can create something that uh, not only speaks to your voice that isn't defined by other people's narratives and other characters Um, and you're literally creating a book to help other people (laughs) find their voice Uh, to help other people uh, feel assured in the person that they are through the the archetypes of the tarot Uh, not attaching too much to the archetypes but just laying some examples so that you can define yourself on your own terms yeah yeah well one of the things that you and I each as I was editing our draft 
I noticed that we both constantly wrote inner knowing mm. because, <laughs> because that is what it's about. It's about like getting in touch with our own perspective and seeing the world knowing that we're looking out from that place rather than looking at the world through the lens that we're told we're supposed to like saying like, Oh, I'm supposed to be really feminine. Like I have felt that pressure. I, I haven't really lived by it because I'm distracted. Like just as much as I might feel that pressure, I'm really excited about this thing that just looks super gay or <laughs> really colorful or really simple and plain and minimal. Um, and maybe not feminine at all, mm-hmm. but yeah, I, I think it makes sense that we have both worked so hard on a tool to help other people with that because we both really struggled with it in very different ways. Um, I was thinking when you were saying like, yeah, when I started that 10 years ago, I was thinking about where I was at 10 years ago. And I had, I remember feeling like I had just woken up Mm. like my life hadn't even started until I was 23. What things were happening at the age of 23 or what was, what was transitioning in that few year gap? Oh my God. So much. So I was engaged to somebody when I was like 20 and he was perfectly fine. Um, you know, we weren't a good match. We didn't really have any shared interests other than like making stupid jokes, but we all love that. (laughs) And he had a really hard time with physical affection, with verbal affirmations, which are two huge love languages for me. We didn't have the same aesthetics. We didn't have the same goals in life, but coming from the background I did for years, I felt like okay, this person doesn't treat me badly. Wow. I'm so lucky. Yeah. I'm so lucky. I finally found this person who isn't going to abuse me. Yeah. And I thought that's what true love was. And I, I mean, I really would have said that, like, I love him because I feel safe. You know, I knew he wasn't going to leave me. And when I, at the age of like 2021, started really branching out and pursuing my interests, I was like, volunteering and teaching body image workshops to girls aged 12 to 75. And I had just made up this workshop and started doing it. And I was working as a sex educator and I was also helping out in an after school program at an elementary school as an assistant. And I was acting in and producing the vagina monologues (laughs) and one day I just realized that I was so in love with my life, my friends, my job, all the things I was doing. And I was like, Oh wow. I don't love this guy at all. Like Mm -hmm. I care about him, but I'm not happy being in a romantic partnership. And I feel like I'm limited by feeling like this social bondage to this person. Mm -hmm. And when I broke up with him, you know, it was really hard. I was, I was afraid of losing this person that had been my only constant for years. And I did lose him, which, you know, hurt in the moment, but it really wasn't a loss. And I remember the first night that I moved out, I like broke up with him one night. It was the closing of the vagina monologues. And the next day I moved out and I never cried once after leaving that house. I like snuggled down into my little full size bed of being single. And I was like, I love that I can just spread out in this bed. I mm-hmm. love this. And for the next couple of years, I was just like joyfully single and adventuring in my life. And it felt like, Oh, this is what it's like to be alive. Yeah. And that is a powerful thing. And I think uh, a gift that, not many people take advantage of because of the fear of unknown, um, the fear of being alone. So much of our childhoods are defined by uh, abuse or loneliness, even within uh, a healthy setting. 
So the idea of choosing to be alone and that being a joyful experience feels so elusive. That's something that I was so afraid to experience when I got divorced. Um, But it was in those last few years of being married to a lovely man, um, but one whose path was so opposite of mine, realizing uh, I didn't want to use a partner to to hide or cover up my own loneliness. I need to be alone and to learn to love that alone and then choose someone uh, to be with while I know that I've already established purpose on my own. <laughs> Taking that space to just be by yourself and really love your life is such a beautiful thing. And... So that's, I don't know, I think it's really amazing that you were able to do that while in your early 20s, mm-hmm. when uh, most of culture is pushing people to pair up. Yeah, it was a wild time. I remember how scary it was to make those choices. And even without like wanting to be partnered up again, I God, I left that relationship and I was like, I am never getting married and I'm never living with someone again. And then <laughs> I got married when I was 25 and I've been with that beautiful human ever since. <laughs> um, but I remember sitting in my car knowing I really had to leave Humboldt County um, and I ended up moving to Santa Cruz. But before I realized where I was going to be going, all I knew was that my life in Humboldt County was coming to a close and I had to make a choice. And I remember weeping in the driver's seat of my car and just being like, there's nobody else that can help me make this decision. I have to do it on my own. I want anyone else to do it. I hate yeah. this. Because it's scary when the, it's the very first time you have to do that. Mm-hmm. But just because something is scary doesn't mean we shouldn't do it. Yeah. Where do you think in the the journey of the major arcana, where do, what card do you think represents that first taking risk or going out on your own? Well, the fool, obviously. Yeah. The classic. <laughs> um, but I think, you know, that year of realizing what joy I had and what I needed to leave behind in order to move on to the next part was the chariot Mm -hmm. um that kind of temporary and somewhat surface level but very integral celebration of having you know come so far in the journey with miles to go with the harder shit to go but something we talk about in our book is that the cycle is both a lifelong one and a perpetually in motion one so I don't know my lifelong cycle where I was at then, but (laughs) there were a lot of archetypes at play for sure. Yeah. Is there anybody else on your uh, list of characters that you want to call out while we still have time? (laughs) I mean, Anne of Green Gables. We love an orphan. Um, (laughs) Steven Universe, also kind of an orphan now that I'm thinking about Mm -hmm. it. Love an orphan. Louie from the new Interview with a Vampire TV series. That shit is so gay and hot <laughs> and good. Recommended. And finally, I think the most <laughs> uh, controversial character, Jenny Schechter from The L Word. Jenny. Ooh. Okay. I love her. She's such a messy bitch. Mm-hmm. And she doesn't hide it. She's like, beginning she's like I don't know I'm by curious and then at the end she's like I'm insane (laughs) deal with it (laughs) never once does that woman back down from being herself even though she's a monster and she knows it and I just really love that about her it's true and there's I feel like we're kind of waiting we got some we got some kind of updates and conclusions from characters that were really demonized in the original L word in the new Jen, I haven't watched it. Oh, well, it's not that great. It's really not. My partner and I, Vic, we watch it and we mostly rip it to shreds. 
because we're like I know no one like this I know so many queer lesbian wonderful human beings and no one is like any of these characters but (laughs) Jenny I feel like I've met a lot of Jennies and oh definitely uh, in the original L word, there was some shaming towards being bisexual. Um, and she took a lot of the brunt of that. Um, so I feel like in the new L word, there, needing, there needs to be some redemption for a woman who's going through it and willingly is going through it. It's okay to be <laughs> bisexual. Uh, it's okay to be bicurious. It's okay to be pansexual. All of those things are welcome within this community. The old the old narratives, there's some old rusty narratives in the original L word that could definitely be updated. And I bet that in current culture, uh, Jenny would get some better support. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. I think, uh, I think she needed a good therapist. And um, maybe not such an incestuous queer community. Yeah. And we all struggle with that. Listen. Um, but, you know, I have, I have a hot take about queerness in general, which is that I think if you are attracted to any form of femininity, you're gay. Period. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's it. I, I don't even, I'm not even going to elaborate. That's my there you go. Take. I'll leave that at that. Uh, I can say, you know, uh, I was a very late in life uh, queer bloomer. Took me a long time to really piece it apart. Uh, but probably one of the most comedic elements of my late in life coming out is that um, most of the men that I dated when I was younger were often mistaken as being women because of their beautiful soft skin and rosy cheeks and luscious lips. I do find myself attracted to a very effeminate man. Uh, and then the qualities that I love in women, I'm, I tend to, if there's like a, there's like a spectrum of like hyper feminine, hyper masculine, I'm usually attracted to gender blobs in the middle. I love a masculine, uh, energied woman who also loves to knit and crochet and darned her socks and, you know, the sweet little domestic things that uh, she does because she loves them, not because a man told her she has to. Yeah, you know, if you can take a big helping of every gender and smush them together into a casserole, that's mm. what I find attractive. Delicious. I can figure it out. Mm, it yeah. definitely has squishy potatoes in it. We want some squish yeah. on that delicious who bean. Are, who are the squishy potatoes of media? Who are mm, the like yummy? Who are the squishy potatoes? <laughs> what? All right, this is a new list I need to create. Uh, list your favorite squishy potatoes in media. Luna Lovegood. Oh. Yeah, you know you're gay if you. Uh, <laughs> either wanted to be Luna Lovegood or were kind of in love with Luna Lovegood. And as a bonus, you know that you're autistic if either of those is the case. You well. are absolutely on the neurodivergent train <laughs> <laughs> if yeah. you love Luna. This is the truth. Well, well, what are your other characters on your list? Some of my other characters, all of the children in Lemony Snicket stories. They're amazing. We love orphans. We love orphans. We love them. (laughs) Who else? Who else? Uh, Jonathan and everything is illuminated. He's kind of, he's kind of got orphan energy. He's going back to his homeland or his family's homeland um, to uncover the stories, the hidden stories of his past. Uh, Everybody in Stardust. Uh, everybody in the Shadow of the Wind series, um, the Little Prince, Santiago and the Alchemist. I love anybody on a mystical journey, learning about the world, philosophizing as they go. Anything, any of the characters written by Kafka. Again, people kind of like in a surrealist space, exploring self and identity. Uh, 
that's all magical to me. All of the women from the hours. Ooh, you are such a Virgo. You are, you harness all of this like power, feminine power <laughs> energy. I am like the, if you were like the, I don't know, if we were characters in a book, I feel like you would be some sort of queen or powerful witch, and I would be the little page boy who (laughs) is, like, coming up with his own little schemes and, like, playing with mice in the castle. The the characters that I'm bringing into my mind based on what you're saying are that I am this, like, 1960s lounge, like, long coat, I don't know. I'm imagining smoking incense for some reason. Interesting. Um, <laughs> kind of like juicy mother energy. And I'm imagining you as a newspaper selling child yes. going extra. Yes. <laughs> that is my energy. Yes, it is. So, and yep. I mean, I would say, gosh, I think you are this like very avant-garde human being to Put it so generally um i think in a movie you would be the really cool like curator of a museum and then as soon as the scene shows the museum door shutting you like sit down with a joint <laughs> and start playing candy crush on your phone just something absurdly mainstream to contrast the extreme like curated really beautiful aspect this is quite literally me this is this is I'm like I don't know if this is that abstract this is pretty (laughs) accurately me (laughs) yeah yeah god I don't know what I am I think I'm a like a Pokemon Pokemon (laughs) and I'm a Pokemon so in our own worlds we are ridiculous little tiny characters the like character we definitely embody the fool in the tarot but to each other we are very elevated. Very elevated. Not pedestalized, I don't no. think. No, no, no. Just, yeah, I think that we see each other's complexity in a really beautiful way. Yeah. And I think as general, in general, humans see ourselves pretty ridiculously because we know all the dumb shit that we think. Yeah. And if you're someone who's not able to see the silliness within yourself, I'd really encourage you to explore it. Because it's such a bummer to have to present as all-knowing and all-powerful all the time. That doesn't make you a better person. It's just exhausting. Be the Pokemon you want to see in the world. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Alley Cali. That's my little Pokemon sound. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. Say the dumb thing. Listen, when Moran and I are not recording, we are constantly saying things in different accents making songs up out of nothing also the fact that we both have clean hair today is really impressive it is Um, our various shags to fit in as cool kids with a tm on it Mm -hmm. you know the other day a friend who did not know me pre-2020 pre-2020 i always looked professional um and my hair is naturally fairly straight and very heavy So most of my life I had a pretty blunt cut and even in the most casual clothes, I looked really severe and harsh. So she laughed and was shocked when she saw a very professional me. But yeah, I think I need, I need to be a shaggy little newsboy from the seventies forever just to keep myself feeling normal and not so uptight. So cute. You know, we met, uh, it was me having a pixie cut, which I really enjoyed and am no longer wanting. Uh, it's got my hair as long. And you had these two super thick, beautiful, long braids, which I cannot imagine you having anymore. But also, wow, I, I was in awe of your hair when we met. I was like, that's the hair I wish I had. I love my curls and everything, but you do naturally have really great hair. I do. It just doesn't feel right to my personality to not be a little scruffy shag thing. At least not right now. Yeah. When we get to we get to be all the things. We get to try out the periods of our life where 
we feel very, you know, intensely one thing and then be like, oh no, not anymore. Life is, life is a highway and you just got to ride it all night long, you know? <laughs> exactly. When I wake up, that's exactly what I kind of think of. Yeah, it just comes to me. <laughs> yeah. Well, I have loved having you on the podcast today. I have loved getting to explore the characters that resonate with you. Uh, I'm so grateful that you took the time to do it, even when it maybe was uncomfortable or you weren't interested, because it reveals a lot. And I love the person underneath, underneath it all. With Hallie Little, uh, thank you for having me on. And, you know, doing hard things with people you love makes them a lot easier. Um, so thank you for inviting me to get a little uncomfortable. I'm so good at being uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> well, that is our natural state. Again, you know that you're likely autistic if you're always uncomfortable. Yes. Life is a tag scratching at the back of my neck. And it can never be cut off until finally I'm released from this mortal coil. One day. But But for now. it'll happen. So until then, (laughs) got to just do whatever I want. Like writing a book. Like writing a book. Like petting my small dog. Yeah. And like doing whatever I feel like doing tomorrow. You know, we get to be whoever we want to be. Thanks. And I appreciate you. I appreciate you. And I love you. And thanks for listening, folks. If you want to get more of my work, uh, I have a podcast called The Pocket Coven that we mentioned. You can get it wherever podcasts are held. Um, and we actually talked this week about sacred aloneness, which really works with today's mm. chat with you. And you can also get in touch with me on my website, callylittle.com, or on Instagram, where I am most of the time, at gosh, Callie. Perfect. We'll see you everywhere. I'll Ta-ta you. for now. Bye.